broadcasting from a mysterious transmission deep in the Beta Quadrant. This is Politrix. The Time Directive, the Declaration of Human Rights, the United Federation of Planets, the United Nations, World War II, the Dominion Federation War, the Art of War, the Teachings of Sirach, Jesus Christ. Welcome, everyone, to Politrex, the show where we look at the socio-political happenings of today through the episodes, movies, and philosophy of Star Trek. This episode marks the refit. Yes, we had to destroy last season's Politrex, 20 episodes in, and now we are Politrex A. So that can be a good way to define, delineate the seasons, define the difference between what we talk about then and now. Uh, it's gimmicky, but I like the idea because my name is Barry DeFord, and with me is the guy who came up with that idea, the often imitated, never replicated Mr. Shashank Avaru. How are you doing today, sir? Namaste, homo sapiens. It's good to be back. And I imagine all our refitting going through in fast forward motion as we see the bones of the ship, then just everything just being tied around it like at the very end of Into Darkness, I believe. So, yeah, uh, this is great. I'm excited. Yeah, and, I, and I, I'm and i floating around the refit like Kirk in TMP, just marveling at the beauty that is uh, is the show that we we have here and, and what it looks like. So it's, it's happy conversation, it's political conversation, and it all has to do with Star Trek. So we've got a lot of news to talk about, and uh, it's going to be some pretty good hot takes from both of us on a couple of uh, things. But before we do that, Shashank, how can our listeners get a hold of us uh, in, the, uh, in that system of tubes we call the internet? People can find us on at Polytrex on Twitter. That's P-O-L-I-T-R-E-K-S on Twitter. We're also under the same name on Facebook. We are a proud member of the Tricorder Transmissions Network. You can find the entire roster of our episodes, everything from episode one till now, uh, and a lot of other exciting shows on the tricordertransmissions.com. You can find us on iTunes. Please rate us and give us a review, good or bad. We can take it. We, we have a thick skin. And... Yeah, that's a great way to get a hold of us. If you're uh, one of the old pigeon mail people, uh, DM each of us, find our usernames. We'll talk about them at the end and we'll write back to you. We don't care. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, if you like what we're doing, you can always support us on Patreon through the Tricorder Transmissions. Uh, on the webpage, uh, you can find it there. If you hop on Patreon and look up the Tricorder Transmissions, you can go that way. What I really like is, though you know you may be giving material support in the name of Politrex, it also helps our other shows, which are fantastic, like Reading Trek, Drawing Trek, Trek Ranks, Trek Profiles, Disco Trek, Shore Leaves, Sober Trek, The Original Mission, Weekly Trek, Queer Trek. It's all there, and it's all wonderful. And uh, there's a lot to talk about and a lot to see and do. So definitely a little bit of support always helps us and makes sure that we can keep everything running at maximum. So uh, I don't know. I think with that, shall we go into the news, Mr. Ravaru? Let's do it. Hit it. the news. It's a, been a big month with a lot of things happening. We are going to, instead of cover a lot of stuff, we're going to cover three things in depth. So to start us off is Shashank to talk, uh, talk to us about the government shutdown that took place in his resident country, the United States of America. What's up there? 
At the risk of making a non-Star Trek quote, the long-time national nightmare is over. The shutdown has come to an end. The shutdown, I believe, lasted 34 days or 35 days. Uh, I might be off by a day. It lasted to the point of time where it became the longest shutdown in the history of the United States. And the end result, this is the most bizarre part. The end result of the shutdown is that things are exactly as they were before the shutdown happened. So some statistics, the government lost about $6 billion during the shutdown, which is more than the cost of the wall that President Trump asked for, that he held the government hostage for for the shutdown, which he ended up not getting and caved. And uh, there were halted flights at the LaGuardia airport. There is a lot of food going around right now, especially groceries that were not inspected properly. There are TSA problems. I'm sure there were their lives lost due to the government being shut down. So a lot of collateral damage, nothing really happened at the end of it. 34 days passed and the White House just said, oh, never mind, we're done, we're good now. Uh, nothing is going to change. Uh, really, uh, whether you like the Democrats or hate them, this is one of the greatest achievements of the Democrats in the in the past couple of decades. They felt to me like the crew of the Deep Space Nine, this ragtag crew that came together. And they really didn't enjoy each other at first. They didn't know where they all stood. But when crisis came, when that entire barrage of Klingon ships and Cardassian ships came down, they stood their ground. They, they were the little party that good for me this time. So yeah, a lot of good news, a lot of mixed results, but I'm happy it's over. You could say that, um, and this is a hot take I got from probably Twitter or something, that uh, Trump wanted a wall, but all he got was a cave. <laughs> you know, he, he caved in. Anyway, that's fine. Um, yeah, I mean, the 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 whole wall and government shutdown issue, I mean, yeah, this was a big game of chicken. And my indictment against the whole meal deal, the whole group, Democrats and Republicans both, is they're not getting along and they're not working out well. And I guess for me... I agree with you that that the Democrats held their ground, which was good. Trump was holding a lot of people hostage. You're right that it has cost the livelihoods of a lot of people. I get pissed off when I hear economists be like, oh, well, you know, these people should just take out loans. And it's like, well, loans aren't free. So, you know, they're losing money. And now to keep their themselves above water, they have to put themselves further in debt. Like, I don't know. I'm just, I'm frustrated at, at the whole situation. And I'm frustrated at the fact that at this point, it seems like the Democrats still seem to think that they can reason their way out of this with this guy and i mean really at this point there isn't any reason there isn't any of that sort of stuff that that can really happen but i guess that's all you have roger stone got uh, arrested and then bailed out so i guess that's a thing that could continue this very slow noose to to continue tightening more and more but um I don't know. I'm I'm I feel for all of my American friends and relations who have to uh who have to live through this fiasco of uh, of democracy that that seems to continue rolling itself forward and yeah, I mean there are some connections to Trek we can make with uh, especially with Deep Space 9 and a lot of the uh, the brinkmanship that took place between, you know, warring parties much like the uh, the Republicans and the Democrats but I don't know. I don't really know what the outcome is going to be here at the end. And it's it's unfortunate and frustrating. My favorite comparison to the whole situation with the Mueller investigation 
is because it's been happening in the background and you're really not supposed to notice it because it's more of a drip, drip, drip than a big waterfall incident that floods the entire room. It's the Picard maneuver and the Riker maneuver. It's the it's the uniform changes that so subtly happen over seasons that eventually you just don't even notice it anymore. The first time it was jarring when we heard of some results and now it's just inevitable it seems eventual it's just the uniforms will change life will go on and i'm sure some big explosion will happen within the news that will connect it directly to the trump campaign but at this point really the best way to get them out is the 2020 election so i'm i'm really really excited for that and this is just i think people expected a bit too much from the Mueller investigation and they, they thought, oh, they're going to get an arrest order for the president. And that seems sensationalist. Uh, I don't think that is what is going to happen. Like the Picard maneuver uh, leading to a change in uniforms, this will just happen in the background. And the things that are supposed to happen with it will happen. But the way to get him out is 2020. Well, yeah, I mean, that that could be it. I mean, it took a long time to get Nixon out, that's for sure. So we'll uh, we'll just have to have to wait and see and um i think the biggest thing that any human uh in the america quadrant or whatever can do is just simply be vocal talk to your congress people talk to your senators but also work within your community right i mean we're talking about people who who were affected by the government shutdown if we're starfleet would we let those people suffer no absolutely not by no circumstances and that I think is something that we as Star Trek fans can emulate is the idea that that we don't leave someone behind. We don't leave our our fellow members of of whatever union we're a part of behind. And uh, if you notice in your neck of the woods someone is struggling, someone is having trouble, then um, see what you can do to help them, right? It's something that really I think any any person on any bridge or ops or whatever in Star Trek would do because we know that's the right thing and we always do the right thing. And I guess to quote Picard uh, last little bit here, what does this mean for American democracy? As Picard would say, vigilance. That's, that's what it comes down to is constant vigilance. Great point. Well, uh, speaking of vigilance, it looks like there is a bit of vigilance that needs to happen or maybe it doesn't depending on the opposing opinions we have. But there is a bit of a situation brewing in Venezuela, isn't there, Barry? Oh, yeah. So prepare for a screed, kids. Um, If you follow me on Twitter, you're probably aware of where I stand on the whole thing. I am anti-Guiado. I am anti-imperialist, and yes, I am pro-Maduro. And if that means you don't want to listen to our show anymore or you want to unfollow me, fine. But uh, hear me out. So I'm going to use a Star Trek connection. I'm going to be um, comparing Gowron, the leader of the Klingon High Council, to Maduro. And I think that can give you an idea of, is Gowron a perfect actor? Well, no, of course not. I mean, really, no... No leader is perfect. No leader is exact. But they are relative to their time. They are relative to the culture and to the people that they are a part of. So, yeah, I'm going to be making that larger connection. So keep that in mind as we go. So when Hugo Chavez died of cancer, Maduro was appointed um, president and later voted into the presidency of of Venezuela. Guaido's assertion um, to being in power, you would think I would be talking about maybe Duras in Reunion, but the narrative I'm talking about is actually more redemption than Reunion, because I feel like um, Reunion kind of has already happened, but we'll get into that. So 
in this case, the connection there would be Kempek is Chavez, and both Kempek and Chavez's death caused a controversial crisis of succession that was resolved after a fair amount of time. Now, there's also a bit of, uh, was Kempek poisoned, all that sort of stuff, and um, how did Chavez get his cancer? I'm going to leave the conspiracy out. But to give you an idea, in Reunion, we have Tural, who is Duras's illegitimate son, being asserted as the rightful heir of the chancellery, right? His candidacy is put into dispute, and Picard basically states that he's too young, right? Um, he uh, This leaves the Duras sisters, their whole idea in all of this is to be regents to rule until Tural is old enough, right? So already we can see a constitutional crisis there, right? The idea that, you know, did Duras disclose his illegitimate son? Well, maybe that would have done something different, but he didn't. And if we go by the neutral party diagnosis of what was to be done, that was Picard's to do. So let's go to Venezuela. What happened? So really quickly, Maduro called an election before his official six-year term ended. Now, many of you in the States may not be familiar with calling an election before its time, as things seem to happen on pretty specific two, four, and six-year time frames. However, in Canada, and uh, elections can really be called many times before uh, a candidate or a president or a premier's term limit is over. Usually they'll call it when they think time is right to do it. They still have a limit, but they can call an election earlier if necessary. So now this to you might be a sign of shifty work by Maduro, and you know what, you might be right. Um, but just know it happens a lot in the quote-unquote free world, too, that, that politicians will call elections when they see it beneficial to themselves. So the claim that Tural has is much like the claim that Guiado is making, right? The election was called outside of term limits and is considered unconstitutional, just like Gowron taking the chancellery is unconstitutional because there was a rightful error in the shadows kind of thing. So a leader, however, calling an election is sort of the purview of that leader. And if a succession is being made without certain um, details being brought in, then they are verified. And I mean, if those things are left out, then you kind of have to go with what was chosen by the neutral body. Being illegitimate also throws Toral's right, uh, as the Dura sisters never really disclose you know, all of the details here. There's a speculative sort of thing here. And I think that also kind of connects to Guiado. Um, so either way, the High Council selects Gowron after a neutral body declares it, which is Picard. When the election is called, the opposition, of whom Guiado is representing, so this is in Venezuela, the, the election is called, Guiado's sort of ilk, the, the right wing, um, refused UN election observers to enter into the election. They abstained um, from that. So that is that and some op opposition, you know, they abstain from the actual um, election itself. So I suppose that's their prerogative, but it all seems a tad too convenient that now Guiado, someone who actually 80% of Venezuelans don't even know who the heck this guy is, is just appointing himself president. That's what he's done. After refusing US, sorry, UN observers, along with staying out of the election itself, re refusing due process is sort of suspect. And if we take this connection, that would be like a group of Klingons refusing Picard as the UN coming in to make sure that things are fair and things are done right. So that already kind of kind of brings everything into uh, into question. Guiado essentially, like, who is this guy? 
Well, he has strong ties to the United States in, in their business sector and actually went to school in Washington, D.C. Most of the military defectors who are in who are friendly to Guiado are in countries outside of Venezuela. And I would argue it seems like this whole plan was hatched outside of Venezuela. So Terrell's plan was also hatched by the Romulans to foment power over a nation that isn't theirs. So recognize where I'm going here. No, USA, you are not the United Federation of Planets in my analogy. That's the UN. You are the Romulans, and you are trying to use constitutional means to install a friendly leader. Why? Well, the answer is oil. Venezuela has the richest oil reserves in the world, and assassination attempts and crippling sanctions, and they've cost to the tune of almost $6 billion since 2017 alone, have not had the desired effects, right? They want to, you know, basically pop out this... this leftist government in any by any means necessary. And if you think about the rest of South America, they've been pretty successful. So like the Romulans, but in more of a blatant manner, the US has stated its material support of Guiado if his coup is unsuccessful. So they will bring the military in and they will fight, much like the Romulans said they would. So there's more to this episode. And I will say that it's not being prophetic. However, it does make statements on meddling versus assisting in international crises of other nations. I mean, heck, Ronald Reagan was present during the filming of Redemption, a man who meddled heavily, um, like every president since Monroe in Latin America. So basically, the claim Guiado is making is that the election was fraudulent. And this means that according to Article 233 of the Bolivarian Constitution, that if the president position is left vacant, the office can be claimed by the VP. Here's the problem. Guiado is a parliamentary president who determined that the six-year term of the president and the VP has ended because he doesn't recognize last year's election. So yeah, you don't recognize an election you intentionally didn't participate in and went against having the UN observers there. Now, you want to evoke an article that tenuously lays a path to your presidency, that's what the Duras sisters with Toral basically did. Sorry, term limits are limits, but they're not durations. If you want to call an election early, you can, right? As the president, you can do those things. So speaking of collusion, something that the USA is known for the world over in elections, but easily the most in Latin America, if we remember Chile in 1973, when a democratically elected president was murdered in a coup that was sponsored and supported by the United States, which put in a fascist military junta that had ex-Nazis on its senior staff. But also many people in the Democratic Party are, are basically calling for um, this change to take place. At the same time, they're dealing with an un possibly unconstitutional presidency. So does that mean Nancy Pelosi or Hillary Clinton can just declare themselves president? Is that how this all works now, that basically democracy is just people shouting that they're the president? I mean, there is a constitutional challenge happening both in Venezuela and in the United States. And Trump is supporting Guiado a U.S. educated person with ties to the oil sector and has plans to enact sweeping reforms of privatization. So what of Maduro then? Is he my favorite? Well, Gowron was a great character and led the Klingons pretty well until the very end. Again, there's more meddling that we could talk about at length there. But no, Venezuela is not some perfect socialist society. Its path is one to socialism, but the pressures of market-driven planetary economy hampers that path. They are more state capitalist, I would say, and that makes sense in this case because of the need to manage such an immense oil reserve. Have the Bolivarians made missteps? Yeah, definitely. Have they also, like Cuba, been hobbled by sanctions? Oh yeah, which is something that we tend to conveniently forget. So finally, do I blindly support Maduro's government? No, I mean, I have my critiques, but that's easy for me living in, in, in Canada, a country that material benefits from the meddling in, in the global south. I support Maduro in the Bolivarian revolution, not because it's perfect, but because it's trying. It's not 
an experiment, but it is, like other socialist societies, scientific. A lot of work and participation from people, everyday people, must occur to ensure that wealth and resources are distributed evenly. Can we say that Canada and the U.S., we have an evenly distributed wealth? I would argue no. So what of mass food lines and the rampant malnutrition and starvation? Well, firstly, the media is not being accurate. And if thought can control language, then language can control thought. There's my Orwell mention, if anyone noticed it on Twitter. I find him frustrating, but he's right here. You cannot say f- you fully understand anything about a place you've never been to either. So I would defer to Venezuelans living in Venezuela. Just remember that those who support Guiado do stand to gain here. Demographically, they are not the poor. Those who are deep in the working class are coming out on mass in support of Maduro and his government. Have these things been easy for them? No. But they hold on and keep going because a shared wealth is better. And so to finally finish this all off, um, we had Josh Mufawad Paul on recently. Uh, here's a quote by him. And this is something as Trek fans, I think we really need to think about. Any honest and imperial assessment of reality must conclude that when we look at the entire world, the majority of humans toil under violent conditions of exploitation so that a minority of the global population can possess less vulnerable and more enriched lives. My support for Venezuela is definitely because of my politics being left-wing. But also, I am anti-imperialist, and I see this action, this coup d'etat, as an imperialist action, much like what Romulus tried to do to the Klingon Empire. Mic drop. So Star Trek Discovery season two is out. I know, isn't that great? <laughs> it was. Uh, it's it's good so far. I don't know how deep we can get into it, given that we did an entire episode's worth of uh, content in the news section. But <laughs> we'll we'll do our best. We'll do our best to sh- shout out some thoughts. Uh, good so far. I don't know why anybody was skeptical of Hanson Mount. He's doing great as Pike. Uh, oh man, he's fantastic. I'm sure. I. You know, I have a wild theory. I think at, toward the end of this episode, I think Pike will leave. Uh, I think he's only there for a season anyway, so I, we know that. And he'll leave. They'll either start a new Pike show with Rebecca Romain as number one, but whatever they do, the more and more I see Discovery, the more I realize the captain position is going to be like the defense against the dark arts position in Hogwarts. <laughs> yeah, right. That's actually a really good analogy to make. Every, every, you can you can listen to more about all that when you jump on over to the Black Badge, which is an independent Star Trek podcast. I'm doing all about Discovery and all the new shows that are coming out. So if you want to talk about that, hear about that. That'll be dropping very soon. You can find me on at blackbadgepod.com. Sorry, same to shelf promotion, but yeah, I'm I'm enjoying it, man. What about you? I I, I really love that the the first. Uh... The first episode of season two was a wild ride. Um, definitely some people have said that it evokes sort of the 2009 Trek feel. Sure. I mean, there's always been action and intrigue and stuff like that. And I mean, if you're going to use special effects, use them. So that's fine. But I really feel like uh, episode two had a lot of good nods and a lot of good formulaic nods. Too old Trek, I guess. And I, I think this is a perfect example of the writers listening to the right people because anyone who who's saying, well, this isn't Trek, this isn't Trek, all that sort of stuff. I don't know. Do you stand in like the produce aisle of a, of a uh, grocery store and say, you know, like yell at people about the food they pick because you don't like it? I don't know. Like, Okay, I can see that Discovery is taking artistic license, it's changing some things. I mean, the tech looks way better than it did in the 60s, obviously. All this sort of stuff, but like is this show entertaining? Is this show fun? Does it harken to the to the ideals of Trek that you love? 
and it does, great. Watch it. Enjoy it, right? Listen to, you know, Shashank's new show. Listen to Shore Leave. I mean, there's a lot of great discussion taking place there. Um, you can even listen to Shashank more if you want. If you don't have enough Shashank in your podcast life, you can also check him out on Discovering Trek as well. He does the first episode and has some really good takes on things. But like, more than anything, I think the politics around Discovery at this point, it's moot. If you don't like the show, great. I'm, you know, like, I don't know, do you want a badge? Do you want some kind of accolade? Like, I don't know why people are parachuting in on some friends of ours, um, like Johnny Staggs um, and, and Chris, like a few of you guys, I'm noticing you just getting like a ton of flack about saying you like Discovery. And I don't know, why do these people have all this time to do that? I don't understand. It doesn't make any sense. And uh, I find it kind of frustrating, to be honest. So there's a lot of talk about Discovery. It's a great new season. It's super fun. Watch it because it's enjoyable. And if you don't enjoy it, I don't know, go take a nap or something. And once you're back from that nap, make sure you listen to the rest of our episode because our main topic is an exciting one. We're going to start Polytrix A with villains. Welcome, everybody, to our main topic today. We're very excited to do this at the beginning of the year. I feel like we've talked a lot about heroes. We've also talked about dubious characters, which I'll talk about in a second. But since there is so much going on in the world, and a lot of it is political, and a lot of it is instigated by characters in, in a lot of ways, figures who are personalities that are deserving of critique and introspection. We thought it'd be a good idea to start the year by talking about some of Trek's villains. And these might all be characters. Some of them could be talking about things that we already think are really positive that might not be as positive as we think they are. But before we get into it, uh, I and Barry thought it was a good idea to make a distinction between the episode we did about dubious characters and villains. Uh, a good example here would be our favorite Ferengi, Quark. Quark is a dubious character because he's out for selfish gain. And he's out to make money at time of peace and at time of war. As the Ferengi rulebook says, you know, uh, it's just there is no better time to make money than either peace or war. And that's what he's doing. He's obeying his nature and he's living his life. But when push came to shove, and the ship needed saving when everybody else was incapacitated. Quark stepped up and he saved everyone on the ship, including much to the latter's fury, Odo. So that is a dubious character, a character who is out for selfish gain, who does questionable things, but is ultimately a good character. A villain, and we'll probably get to him in this episode at some point, is Gul Dukat, somebody who has little to no redeeming qualities about him. The sad thing about a character like Gal Dukat is the most redeeming thing about that character is his daughter, the fact that he has a daughter. And that is the only time we get to see a soft side of him. Otherwise, he's always out following injustice, killing people, celebrating genocide, trying to trample over nations and cultures, all because he has a deviated, destructive sense of rule that he's determined to see through. 
and will not stop anywhere to get it. So there is a very big distinction between villains and dubious characters. And the reason why we're doing this episode is we wanted to talk about outright negative characters that from the word go are negative or eventually at least feel to be negative characters. And that was something that we thought you should know before we jumped in. But we'll talk about villains here in a little bit. Just to give you his thoughts about the whole topic, my favorite Canadian in the world, Barry DeFord. Oh my goodness, that's that's quite the uh, that's quite the thing. I hope I don't turn out to be a villain, um, <clears throat> but no, I, I like the idea of maybe sort of bookending both of our two quote unquote seasons with heroes when we had our first episode, and now we're talking about villains and sort of how villains get portrayed within Star Trek because I sense a formula, but also like. Like it's been said, I think uh, I think Bill Smith mentioned this that that Star Trek is a mirror, and and sometimes we like what we see and sometimes we don't. And I think in those villains you can really see things that we don't like, um, but they are realities that exist. So I want to maybe start with some deeper cuts to villains because Shashank and I were chatting before we started recording that uh, <clears throat> we do bring up uh, Deep Space Nine pretty often and some specific characters from Deep Space Nine and. I guess the, the the frustrating part of that is we're sorry, but they're just such well-written characters and there's so much to talk about about them. So if you have any complaints about us talking about Deep Space Nine, which we probably will, um, please send all complaints to the writing department of Star Trek Deep Space Nine um, because they did too good of a job. So that's just that. But I want to start maybe with... Um, Again, uh, what what Jim Morehouse would say is the greatest episode of Star Trek on the silver screen, Star Trek Insurrection, and the villain, Admiral Doherty. He is working for the um, SONA, the uh, group of people who are interested in getting that uh, life elixir uh, from the Baku, the just sort of the, the radiation or whatever it is that, that makes that planet uh, keep those people young for so long, and uh, all the implications to that. And his ultimate destruction really comes from his own personal greed, and uh, we can see him as just sort of this bad character. Um, how well do you remember Admiral Doherty from, uh, from Star Trek Insurrection, Shashank? He is an interesting villain, for sure, because he is not outright violent. He does not jump in and say, hey, I want to destroy everything inside. Instead, he's in, in a lot of ways a more devious villain than those that are outright destructive because he wants to work over time to change everything in reality to suit his point of view. Uh, I see in the notes that we were discussing that we go off of when we record episodes, you call him a colonizer, and that couldn't be truer. As someone who comes from a country that was colonized for the longest time, in our history books, we are taught about colonizers. And one of the things that is similar amongst all of them, especially the popular ones, is that they use the system to get what they want. And in, in this regard, he he uses the Federation. And I would say with that, you know, being being a person from a settler colonial background here in Canada, again, you can see what what the reasoning is, right? Um, the, the colonization that England did to India uh, and to Canada was for the greater benefit of the English Empire, right? As Doherty says, it was for the Federation. It was all for the Federation. What he's really saying here is that he is the Federation, right? It's his interests. It's the interests of the home country. And to hell with anyone else. To hell with with the interests of the people who you are exploiting to get the thing you want. I mean, 
India was making better iron than England, so England cut off their ability to do that. Um, when the Indian people do rebel against England, I mean, they engineer a famine in Bengal, which kills millions of people. And and we don't really talk about these things. We never we never really bring that to the fore. Um, the idea that when Canadian settlers were heading out west, um, First Nations people were being put on reserves to make way for those settlers. They were being taken away from their land, um, sometimes by force. I mean, more so under um, Martin Van Buren's uh, government in the United States in the 1800s. But you see it happening in Canada as well. This idea that you are putting the interests of your own people above others who ultimately have a better claim to the place that you are trying to assert your power in. And that's what we see with Admiral Doherty. And and I'm saying his name weirdly because of that GH always kind of screws me up. Um, but th- we see that with him and we see him putting these interests of the Federation using what could be something good like the Federation for something evil. And you see Picard's fight with that. You see him having to make a choice on judgment. And, you know, there were leaders and and generals and military people who existed within the English Empire who took umbrage with what was happening. And quite frankly, a lot of them face the consequences and a lot of them are demonized by that. So, you know, Picard takes that into his own hands, right? He He pops his pips off and makes a decision to betray really the the state that he has you know he has dedicated himself to but he does it for the right reasons and part of me wonders sometimes if uh if if perhaps those groups of people could have made it better um and or not made it better if if those groups of people could have been more successful then maybe we would have seen a better relationship and not the colonial one that i think both india um south africa China, um, Belize, Canada, a lot of countries that have been affected by British rule um, are still recovering from. And I mean, you could say Canada isn't necessarily recovering from it, but there are people within Canada who are in the process of of turning things around. It definitely makes it a little bit more complicated too. Here's a quote from Sir Patrick Stewart about Anthony Zerbe's role as Doherty, he says he's the one who has to deal with his loyalty to the Federation, while at the same time accommodating the evil wishes of the sauna. He is a man who we see is stoned by his professional dilemmas. And of course, before the end of the movie, we see him literally torn by something physical as well. There is a, if you ignore the, the attempt at humor there at the end, that's very, very true about the character. In a lot of ways, he's an anti-Picard. He's like, if Picard went into the mirrored universe and came back and tried to reintegrate into society, because Picard is someone who lives his life by the Federation's rules and regulations. To him, Federation's policies are his policies. That is just who he is as a person. But to someone like Doherty, that is a person who now at the high end of the power chain has learned that it's actually doable to change everything about the Federation to match your evil intent. And to get what you want, you could legally use these means that typically people would use for good. And that's in a lot of ways very much relevant in the world today, especially in the US, where people are using policies and rules and regulations to fit their own racist motivations. But uh, the fascinating thing about colonization, and maybe we should do an episode about colonization, Barry, and talk about how 
what it means in Star Trek and what what its effect is and what Star Trek teaches us about it. But there is a practice in India, or there used to be a practice in India back in the back from the beginning of our culture till the 18th, 19th century when the British abolished it. It's called the Sati law or the rule of Sati. Sati is a tradition in which when a husband dies, when his pyre burns, they throw the wife also into the pyre and kill her with the fire of the husband's pyre. That cruel, evil, ridiculous tradition was abolished by the British. So yeah, you're right. There was a famine engineered. There was there was a huge amount of destruction to our culture and our people, but there were also things like this that were abolished. There, there was, there is nuance there. It's, it's not as simple as oh, they were all terrible. Everything that did was terrible. It's kind of not really true because there were things done that in eventually ended up helping the people. So it's just you cannot be very extreme about it and say, oh, that's all terrible that these villains do because, and that's, I guess, the hallmark of a good villain too is some of the actions they do can be perceived as good. And that there, there is some of that in Doherty, I think. Am I am I off base here? No, and, and, I, and I would agree with you that, that the relationship between both nations could be positive in that sense, right? Um, the English did did stop the the practice of sati and and I'm glad that that happened but my question is 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 the engineered famine that killed millions equivalent to the amount of women who are being killed and I and I don't want to sound callous but I'm I'm kind of like millions and millions of indians died unnecessarily when also I mean influence from other countries can cause those sorts of things to change as well right like um I would think that that you know, sort of the social pressures that um, that take place when two two nations, two individuals, two groups have. I mean, they will they will come around in those sort of senses, and and I would say very much so that that the rights of women were not perfectly good in the United Kingdom, really either, um, at that exact same time, and I would argue as well that. That though I don't agree and firmly don't agree with the concept of sati, um, I do think that that is an Indian issue that needs to be solved by Indians, um, because it is their nation, it is their culture, and they should be they should be the masters of that. And I would I would say you know when you see um, Nehru and other leaders of India coming to the fore later, and and Gandhi and the rest. That, that you start seeing that push happening. And, and it is happening in some cases in spite of British rule as well. So you're right, there is a nuance and there are positives. And like, I mean, you can even say the same thing, right? Like smallpox infected blankets were used as a form of warfare against First, Na- First Nations people. And the Hudson's Bay Company, the great fur trading company of Canada, actually was actively trying to vaccinate First Nations people against it, right? Though they were using exploitative means to get the furs that they wanted, they also just didn't want Want this group of people to die needlessly. They did care. There was empathy, but you're right that that's the uh, that's the nuance. That's the whole thing. But ultimately, if you get hung up on that, then you're going to end up kind of in that sort of causality loop, and you won't be able to come up with a with a reason. So maybe I am being absolutist, but to the same degree, I think there were some absolutist things being done by those colonizers as well. And by by Admiral Doherty as well. He, I think, in a lot of cases, he got what he deserved for what he was doing. Hey, uh, speaking of 
nuance and complex villains. We saw this a little differently, but we both saw the episode Unification and we noticed that for each of us, there is a villain that is bigger than the other. So I let Barry go first. Uh, who did you think was a villain worthy of discussion in that episode, Barry, and why? Oh man, Proconsul Neural. He actually engineers this crisis to foment power, right? And that is so Romulan, right? It's a, it's a thing where, again, much like Admiral Doherty, Doherty is not doing something... He, he he's not doing something to to betray the Federation. He thinks he's doing the right thing. He thinks he is acting within the purview of the Federation to do the things he wants. And I would argue the same thing about Proconsul Neural. He is he is doing a Romulan bait and switch to to foment extra power for the glory of the Empire. And yeah, that is incredibly villainous. But it's villainous in the sense of like it won't do the Klingons and it won't do the Federation any favors, but boy, will it ever do a massive favor for the Romulans. So he's this different kind of villain where, you know, we're not always looking at things in that respect. Again, you know, we're going to talk about this a little bit more, but Goldicott, I think, says it best, like, one man's villain is another man's hero. To many Romulans, Proconsul Nero's Nero's whole fight, his whole action would have been for the glory of Romulus. And I mean, why not? And so I think that's interesting how, again, you know, we really do side ourselves with the United Federation of Planets. But um, I guess, you know, it, to look at to look at things in that direction, it's always interesting to to try to see the other side of it and, and be like, well, is this surprising? Is this something outside of, of usual behavior or standard operating procedures of Romulus? And that's why I find Neural to be that kind of quiet amazing villain. Hey, uh, great points. I, I definitely look at Niral as a villain for sure. But to me, he did not stand out to be the villain in the in the episodes, at least not the bigger villain in the entire episodes. Because throughout, you know where Niral stands. Sure, you don't see the strings being pulled by Sila, or you, you certainly don't see, you don't see the fact that there is something devious going on because the character presents himself as devious. And yeah, they betray Spock eventually, but it's not directly done by him. And what really struck me was Pardek's turn and the fact that Senator Pardek was really, to me, the big villain in this in this two-part here because he's, to me, the Mike Pence character, someone who stands by politics, someone who gets up the ladder the right way. You hear in the exposition at the start of unification is that uh, he has been a senator for nine decades. And when you meet him, you have no reason to immediately hate him because he says, I've never seen Picard. And when they do run into Picard, he actually takes him and introduces him to Spock and he helps them. So the way that character is set up, it's very much like a typical politician who climbs up the ladder and then joins themselves with with something really evil and brewing with darkness. And then they it, it turns out that their evil was within the system all along. So the fact that Parthek fostered this long, healthy friendship with Spock, and then they had great dialogue that Spock risked his life. He risked his ambassadorship. He risked his entire career, everything and worked for to come here to Romulus on the basis of this person. The fact that Parthek was able to convince one of the smartest people in the universe to do that and then successfully turn on him and betray him and compromise him and put him in a place where he 
at least apparently there is no way out. That to me is a bigger villainous action. So maybe we saw things differently, but I definitely enjoyed Parthik more as a villain. And it seems like he's one of the bureaucratic villains, someone that goes unnoticed because through the episode, he doesn't do, he doesn't twirl his mustache or he doesn't kill a baby. You know, he doesn't do something outright evil, but the the turn that it takes, the the stretch that you go through this perspective and you keep seeing until you get to where Spock says the only logical conclusion is that you betrayed us. And that's when he goes, yep, I did. And Sila says, oh, yeah, thank you for your service. It's been noted. And boom, that's it. In this episode, if you just look at it from the perspective of Parthik, the villain wins. He succeeds in getting them compromised. He does everything right. And he stands by that Romulus devious way to live and devious way to work things out. So Parthik to me was definitely a bigger villain. Not that I'm taking anything away from Niral. Niral is definitely devious. Uh, You can see that in the character. You can see the things he says. And there is even the actor who portrays him is so good that the minute you see him, you go, oh, yeah, this is definitely a bad guy. But Parthik to me is the bigger win for all the aforementioned reasons. What, What do you think of Parthik? Well, I, absolutely. I mean, I think what we're doing is triaging our 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 villain, or we're ranking them one you know one over the other. And I think that's that's kind of you know that can be up to listeners as well. I'd love to know what you guys think about it as well. I think that would be. Um, and when I say you guys, I mean you guys listening. Um, tell us what do you think. I mean, Sela plays a huge role, and and I I want to save Sela for another conversation because. I think she is an amazing character who is grossly underutilized. So I don't really want to put her into this conversation, mainly because I think she deserves a bit a bit of a deeper dive if we're going to be looking at villains throughout um, throughout this season of Politrex A. So she should come up, and, and I think she deserves a lot more on her own. But again, she is someone who uses the infrastructures present within her own society to foment power, to use betrayal, right? She's using the, the, the strings and gears and tools of Romulan society to make the changes that she wants. And, and I think that that's again, what, what Neural does. Pardek is, is playing a slightly different game, right? He is, he is betraying the good graces of people who truly want to see a positive change. And I can see why you would see him as the bigger villain in that sense too. So yeah, um, this is a, this is this is such a good episode for its villains. I mean, good lord, Leonard Nimoy's in this episode, so its heroes are pretty good too. But um yeah, no, the villains in this are are very well well put together and I think they're well put together because they're not doing anything out of the character of the societies that they're a part of. Hey, uh I know we were going to talk about characters as as villains, but I do think it's worthy of discussion since we are starting out our first episode to talk about some of the villainous intentions of the United Federation of Planets. I think there are ways in which, and I've talked about this on the episodes before, but there there are ways in which Starfleet is villainous, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. That was a really good point of discussion when when you when you presented it. So I, I definitely would love to hear your your thoughts on that at some point, but. 
Yeah, let's get into uh, just maybe a little bit. We could talk about a little bit and then we could talk about the bigger villains that we have. How Does that sound good? Absolutely. So this has sort of been a thing that I've been working on while um, since since we interviewed um, um, Benjamin uh, Benjamin uh, Shudongao and Josh Mufawad Paul about their book Methods Devour Themselves, right? Josh Mufawad Paul says, well, you know, basically the United Federation of Planets is a society where the invisible hand has ironed out all inequality. And and coming from a leftist perspective, that's not what we think is how it's going to work, right? And so that's where I've kind of been going. And it, it's not an existential crisis where I'm going to throw away Star Trek because it doesn't match my political ideology perfectly. I mean, that's silly. Um, I love Star Trek because it's a good show. It's well put together. It asks really good questions. And like we've said, it 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 makes you look at your own society with a better critical view. And if you see the way people react to that, you get a very good idea of what what we want in our own society. I mean, look at how we deal with each other at Star Trek Las Vegas or at different cons or at different get-togethers, right? We base ourselves on love. And and I think that's a really important thing that, that we look at. But in that, I mean, yeah, there are some villainous elements to this show that we love and this uh, this whole concept of the federation right they are imperial to a degree right they go around exploring and i mean that's what explorers in europe were doing right they were also Im- imposing um, power on others they were also taking over areas and of course the federation gets around this through the prime directive but as we know um, i like to call it the janeway law that the prime directive only works as long as it's convenient and it has had a very strange and sort of circuitous you know life throughout each each iteration of star trek so i don't know i would say that to a degree when the federation does meddle in the life and livelihoods of others, that is perhaps sometimes going to have some negative or bad effects, right? I think one of the best one is looking at who watches the watchers, right? The um, This whole idea of looking at these pre-warp societies, the way they're doing it, is invasive and 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 you know it doesn't it doesn't always account for the circumstances that could change quite quickly i mean even going back to insurrection data malfunctions and suddenly the jig is up and i mean their intentions there were nefarious they were going to silently move an entire group of people against their will to another place and use trickery to do it that's bad and i'm really glad picard took and his crew took the position they did and risked their their livelihood and uh, their position within starfleet to do it i just have a little bit more to add about the prime directive it seems like for a rule that is called the prime directive meaning the most important rule of what you're trying to set as rules a lot of people get away with abusing it especially our beloved captains. There are so many gray areas when you go back to episodes and you watch and go, oh, wait, that is, no, that is a violation of the prime directive for sure. Really, the closest thing to a consequence is at the beginning of Into Darkness when it's established that they violated the prime directive and the captaincy is taken away from them. But overall, it seems like it's, it's as you said, much more interpretative than it is absolute. And I'm not there. There is definitely no. I want to say this outright. There is definitely nothing that leads anybody to logically conclude that Starfleet is like the British Empire. But when you use a set of rules to try to interpret in in a way that it leads to doing what you think is right, even if it is objectively the right thing, you cannot deny that that is a villainous action or an evil act. For example. 
when the East India Company found its way to India, they were merely following along a trade route. They had come to trade in spices. That was their entire goal at that time. But, you know, eventually that rule evolved for them. It, the East India Company went from being a trade company to colonizing the entire nation in the name of business, in the name of trade, in the name of understanding and exchanging culture uh, and fostering relationships. So it, it's definitely complicated, the, the things that the Federation does. I still believe that it's the best organization in the universe apart from maybe whatever the Q continuum is, because they're, I would never want to anger them by saying there's anybody better than them. So my Q people, if you're listening, you guys are the best, most powerful, thumbs up to you. But you know, it's it still is the closest thing to a right answer in the universe. But and I, the, the fact that there are people who are not really happy working for Federation, and again, sorry for bringing DS9 up again, again and again in this in this show, but uh, Cisco is a character that stands out in that respect because he's not always happy with the way Federation does things, as opposed to Picard and Kirk, who even if they're not happy, they're definitely not showing it, and and they're falling in line, and, and for them that is the life. But for someone like Cisco, they definitely have reservations, and there are times when Cisco sides with the Bajorans. And he says, you know, I can't do this. It's just not right. The the Bajoran people, they, they have the right to do what they want to do. And speaking of meddling, you see that they merely came to stay at a space station, the the Federation. And by the end of that show, you you just can see how much influence, both positive and negative, Starfleet has had on Bajor and the Cardassians and the way everything turned out. So it's definitely a complicated organization. It's mostly good. But saying that the Federation is not wrong in, in some aspects or to say that they do not have any evil intent or selfish intent or some kind of intent that is not perfect, that's like saying, oh, every episode of Star Trek is the best episode and everything is great. It's it's being an unreasonable fanboy or fangirl. And for a show like Star Trek that talks about complications and nuances, I think it's important to have a nuance on Starfleet and recognize that it's not a perfect organization. And I think that's the point, right? I mean, Gene Roddenberry was reacting to circumstances within his time, and that's why the Federation seems more unified. But those sorts of things also ebb and flow throughout real history as well. And so to see a less unified Starfleet before TOS and after TOS, I don't think that's unreasonable to see or assume. And and those types of ebbs and flows should should be happening in the sense that why we love Star Trek is because it it takes these harsh looks at, at at certain aspects of our own society, and in that, here we are seeing an an imperfect um, an imperfect organization. And yeah, I mean, you talked about Bajor and the assimilative effects that that took place, and those who who capitalized on on the um, sort of the the very kind handed occupation that the Federation did after the Cardassians were gone, right? If you think about, you know, Kai Wynn, and yeah, here we go, here's our Deep Space Nine thing, um, her appointments to First Minister, um, the farming reforms that she targeted old rivals with, uh, making Kira have to choose 
a government that was increasingly becoming its own occupying force as sort of a reactionary shows how much the Federation indirectly, whether it likes it or not, is having on a group of people, right? Who does the Bajoran government serve? And when Wynne's uh, place comes down to the will of the people, this reminds me of what people is that will ultimately, right? If you think about Shakar's resistance to Kai Win, I mean, it reminds me of the Zapatistas kind of, where they're saying, no, 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 we need to be you know, a lot more self, uh, uh, we, we need to have a lot more, um, what's it called, like self-reliance. And with that, the Bajoran system is relying for better or worse on the Federation and its kind and benign hegemonic status. And, you know, I mean, we can we can say, well, you know, that's the difference, right? Because the Cardassians were not benign, whereas the Federation is. Even something that's benign isn't necessarily purely good. Benign just means it's not going to do any, like, real material harm. But harm's can still take place within that. And I think, again, that's not something to shy away from as a Star Trek fan. That's something to bite down on and really think about and, 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 you know, chew on and then, and then reflect on your own nation and how it reacts to things and how it facilitates maybe in other nations and, and, and stuff like that. And, and, you know, through your watching of Star Trek, maybe come to a better understanding of the nation that you belong to. A couple of other villains that we wanted to talk about, but I don't know. Do we have the time to talk about it? Yeah, I think we've kind of reached a limit here. And I mean, heck, we could talk about Goldicott and his connections to uh, Mr. Donald Trump. But uh, there's actually a Twitter profile who never responds to us, but we still love uh, the real Goldicott. Check him out and see what how he's sort of making or she is making those connections um, to uh, to Goldicott and Donald Trump and how. Uh, there, there is maybe a bit of a bigger uh, connection there between people in power using that power in ways that the power was sort of structured for in the first place. So I think this is maybe the beginning of a larger conversation that we can maybe dip back into throughout the rest of this quote-unquote season. We're on episode 20, Shashank. That's pretty awesome. Pretty great. Can't wait for 100, 200, 300 more. Uh, my, my goal is eventually when they discovered how to just artificially keep aging us and not kill us. We are recording episode 10,565 and you are on Mars and I'm on Venus and we're just chilling and we're just recording this interplanetary style. Our heads are in Futurama gefilte fish jars. Oh yeah, of course. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, thank you everyone for listening to this beginning uh, of a brand new season for for Politrex. We're so excited to be uh, moving forward. And as we continue to explore our own political stances and our own understanding of Star Trek, we're glad to have you along with us. And your input is always desired. Like Shashank said, you can DM us. You can send us a message on uh, uh, Twitter, on, on our Politrex feed. You can also send us personal messages if you'd like as well we're always open to that um but uh, more than anything you know while you're taking in your your lovely star trek you can always uh, you can always think about the political implications and if you find that um you've you've listened to maybe not enough you can always uh, check out more podcasts on Star Trek that cover a number of things on the tricorder transition on the tricorder transmissions. You can also check out uh, our friends uh, at the Delta Flyer podcast. They do a fantastic Voyager rewatch. And you can check out our friends Dan and Bill of the Trek Geeks. Or you can always just rewatch DS9 for the 500th time and do your best not to make any more DS9 points on a political Star Trek podcast. Absolutely. So with that, we will say goodbye for now. 
So live long and prosper. And onward to Starside. Starside.